And uh, we're blessed this morning to be able to study from God's Word in Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to just be looking at one verse, which means it's going to be a short sermon. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Why are you guys laughing? You know, you know me too well, huh? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, one verse, and we'll dive into the title of the sermon. As you see, if you've got a bulletin and have your outline, is still no longer. Still no longer. We're in the middle of this uh, context of putting off and putting on in Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read verse 28, and we'll get started. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together to worship you in spirit and in truth. And to sit under the teaching of your word. And I pray as we examine this one verse and all of its implications. That your Holy Spirit would enlighten us and apply this for each and every one in a particular way this morning. That would cause us to put off this sin. And to replace it with something better. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, obviously, we're talking about the subject of stealing. And I can't vouch for the ladies this morning, but most men have probably had a fantasy or two about pulling off the biggest heist the world has ever known. Maybe when you were a boy, you thought about robbing a bank, taking a lot of money, and somehow you got away. Well, that might have been funny when you were little, But it's not funny when you grow up, right? Those things really happen. And some people are not able to resist the temptation for stealing. And such was the case for what is considered to be the biggest art heist in history. This robbery took place on March the 18th, 1990, as famous artwork was stolen that was valued over $300 million taken from a Bostonian museum. Two men dressed as police officers convinced two inexperienced security guards at Gardner Museum that they were responding to a disturbance. Contrary to the museum policy, the two guards let the officers into the premises where they quickly learned that they were duped as these two men then handcuffed the prison guards and put them down in the basement. Amazingly, the two men managed to do this despite not having any visible weapons whatsoever. The men spent the next 81 minutes calmly selecting 12 pieces of art with a combined value of $300 million. And keep in mind, that was about 25 years ago. And among the paintings stolen were three Rembrandts and a Vermeer. The two then took the surveillance tapes and departed Never to be heard of again, though in 1994, an offer was made to return the paintings for $2.4 million, along with immunity from any type of prosecution. But that offer was never acted on, and so then the paintings were never heard of again. The men appear to have possibly been amateurs, as they made no effort to avoid damaging the paintings, and even left more valuable works behind. The case has actually never been solved. It's still open today with a reward of $5 million given to anyone with information pertaining to the, re, uh, to the artworks and helping return them in adequate condition. Also, authorities have announced that they will not prosecute anyone as, uh, if the paintings uh, were returned uh, to, to the museum. So if you're here and you have any information, please 
let them know, we'll help you with the $5 million. There's a few upgrades we could do at the church that would be for God's glory. So you just think about that, pray about it. But you know, the truth is, whenever you're preaching on a particular subject, it seems like something about that subject is going to happen in your life that week. Have you ever noticed that? It happens for you the week after I preach the message. Sometimes it happens for me the week before. Like this week, on Monday, I was served a letter that somebody's tried to heist my IRS bank account returns. Not that there's anything, I don't know if I'm going to get a return this year, but I got a letter from the IRS with my name on it and with another person's name, who was a woman, which alarmed my wife. Honey, who is this? Honey, I have no idea. Call the IRS. Ask them. I have no idea who this is. So we call the IRS, and sure enough, somebody has stolen my identity. Somebody else out there wants to get my tax return, and again, I don't think it's going to be that big, but they want to take it. So I call the IRS. They tell me, yep, you've been suffering from identity theft. We recommend that you do these following things. Number one, file a report with the local police. So sure enough, the black and white pulled up here on Tuesday and scared Terry and Krista to death. We need to see the pastor right now in his office. So I had to file a report. Uh, I did warn them they were coming. So that's just a little bit of a joke there. But um, then I had to file a complaint with the Federal Trade Commission, whatever that is. I had to contact the three major credit bureaus and place a fraud alert on all my credit cards and credit accounts. And I had to end up changing one credit card account that was under suspicion. So I would like to also say that if you have any information on who this identity theft is... I'm offering a reward of up to $5. So if you can help me out, I would appreciate it. In all seriousness, stealing is wrong. The Bible calls it sin. And not only is it wrong, but it's clearly addressed throughout the entire Bible. In fact, I would say that stealing, along with murder are probably about the only two sins that are left that are really uh, cross-cultural, still understood as being definitely the wrong thing to do. And so this morning, as we talk about stealing, I just want you to remember where we are in the book of Ephesians. We're in that section of Ephesians where we're, be, where, where we're being challenged that our conduct would match our calling. We've moved from the indicative, or what Christ has done in the first part of the book, more to the emphasis of the imperative, or what we should do in the second part of the book. And we've been talking about how if we have a high position in Christ, we ought to have a holy practice for Christ. And so as we turn the corner in Ephesians chapter 4, we spent a few weeks looking at verses 1 through 16, which addressed the, the challenge that was issued to us to walk in humility. Now we're in the section of verses 17 through 32, where we're challenged to walk in holiness. And several weeks ago, we looked at how we're challenged to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, but now we have learned Christ. And so if we've learned Christ, it's assumed that you've heard about Christ and you're putting on the teaching of Christ. And in verses 22 through 24, we were referenced to how we need to put off ungodly sinful behavior. We need to renew our minds in Christ and we need to put on godly uh, behavior in its place. So we got to change out the bad for the new and the new is way better. And then Paul lists for us in verses 25 through 32, five specific things that we need to put off and put something else in its place. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first one, which was lying or any type of falsehood. We were told to no longer lie, but instead to speak the truth to one another in love. Last week, we looked at putting off anger or at least that is sinful anger, that we're to put that off. And if we do become angry, it must be, we must be careful that it's true, righteous indignation. 
so that we don't give the devil a foothold. This week, we're looking at putting off stealing and replacing it with something else. Again, these five different things that we put off and put on, we'll look next week at putting off bad words and replacing them with good words, putting off uh, the, uh, treating people in a bad way and replace that with treating them in a kind and gentle way, forgiving them. And so as we look at each one of these, there's really a three-part outline that's developed. There's a, a negative command, don't do this anymore. There's a positive command, instead do this. And then there's the rationale given. Here's, here's why. Here's why you want to do it the right way, because it's going to be better for you and obviously uh, for the glory of God. So following that same outline, if you're if you're taking notes this morning, the first major point here is that negative command, steal no longer. And we read that obviously directly out of verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Now the word for thief here is actually a verb. In fact, if you have an NASB, it's translated as he who steals. And so possibly the reason that the ESV chooses to translate this as a noun with the word thief is because it is a present participle which really characterizes the behavior of the person. So if you're one who steals, then naturally you're called a thief because that's what characterizes your behavior. And so the word here is used thief or it's used he who steals. And so uh, some commentators, as they begin to dig down on this passage, ask the obvious question, well, who is Paul talking to? I mean, he's, he's talking to a group of believers, right? Are there really believers in the church in Ephesus who are like stealing from one another? Aren't they past that? Isn't Ephesus supposed to be this great church of sound doctrine that they would know not to fall into this elementary sin of stealing? So who's he writing to? What, what, what's really going on here? And if you, if you ask me, I would just say, you know what? If you understand your own heart, you know that even if you're a born-again Christian, you still struggle with sin. And that's why the Bible is filled with exhortations to believers to sin no more. But rather, we would walk in the freedom of Christ, that we would confess our sin, that we would repent of our sin, and we would replace that sin with God-honoring behavior. But the truth is, we still struggle with sin. And so while we are positionally pure, before God, because of the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sin, we are practically impure at times in our life when we fall into the temptation of sin. The doctrine of regeneration emphasizes that though you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, you were made alive together with Christ. The doctrine of repentance emphasizes an ongoing need for daily confession and cleansing as we seek to put off sinful attitudes and behaviors and to put on God-honoring ones. So yes, right here in this part of Ephesians where Paul had labored with these believers at this church for almost three years, and while they were born again, there were believers who still struggled with the sin of stealing. Just like here at Placerita, we still struggle with the sin of stealing. We still struggle with various sins. And no matter how old you are in the Lord, you still struggle with this sin. And it's my effort in this sermon to unpack and explain to you how I believe that's true of each one of us, starting with me. Now, back to the immediate context again. Harold Honer, in his excellent commentary on Ephesians, writes this as giving us some inside view of who Paul might be addressing culturally. He writes this, quote, To whom is Paul referring? Were these uh, professional thieves? 
slaves stealing from their masters or Christians stealing from fellow believers? And then he answers that question by suggesting that uh, more than likely it was laborers who stole the things that they handled or shopkeepers who cheated the customers. When a laborer was out of work, there was no welfare system to help him or her, nor would most have had enough wages to be able to save for times of unemployment. At such times, many were forced to steal to maintain themselves and their families. Therefore, the injunction against theft struck at a real problem of the day, close quote. So you understand he's saying, hey, basically, they didn't have big bank accounts. They live hand to mouth from time to time during the year. They might somehow take a little something from their employer just to get by. And it had become culturally acceptable. That's how you make it. And Paul is now addressing them and saying, no more. That's not how we live as Christians. That's not how we learn Christ. You trust in God, you work hard, and you depend on the Lord and the church to provide for you what you need. And so stealing is certainly dealt with, again, as an ongoing problem, not only here in Ephesians. It's not as if this is the first time in the Bible that that this shows up, but it's clearly seen in the Old Testament. In fact, your first blank, if you're taking notes this morning, is that it's clearly commanded not to steal In the Old Testament, certainly you're thinking of the Eighth Commandment. Out of the Ten Commandments, number eight in Exodus 20:15 says, "Thou shalt not steal." Right? You remember that? That that's a commandment in the Bible that we are not to steal. And let's look at a a few places where this command was broken in, in the Old Testament. The first place I want to take you to in Joshua 7, it talks about Achan's sin. Achan's sin. And so if you remember, if you want to turn there with me to Joshua 7, let's just take a look here. This is right after the battle of Jericho. Don't you love that song, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And after the wall fell there in Joshua 6, there was one man by the name of Achan who took some valuable things and put them in his tent. And so when they went out for their next battle against a small city named Ai, they were defeated soundly. Joshua was confused. How could we whoop up on Jericho, and yet we got whooped up on by Ai? What's going on? It was the question that was asked, and here's where we pick up in Joshua 7, verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. In other words, God had told them to either um, destroy everything if it was devoted to the ban of destruction, or on some accounts in the Old Testament, they were allowed to, to give some things into the treasury of, 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 of the Lord. And so in this case, this man, Achan, had taken some stuff and put it in his own tent. Verse 12, therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted thing shall be burned with fire. 
he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Why are we looking at this text this morning? Because this is a prime example of how serious stealing is. Achan had stolen from God, had lied about it and as far as being deceptive, hiding this stuff in his tent, and many people paid a price for his sin. And I just want to ask you to examine your own heart that maybe you wouldn't be accused of being an Achan in our church this day. You say, well, Adam, man, you're kind of getting on our, in our kitchen a little bit, right? Yeah, I am. Because in a church our size, no doubt there's somebody in this church that is actually struggling with outright theft. And I would call you to repent, to turn from your sin, and this day be forgiven by the grace of God. Because I don't want things to go bad for you. Achan here, obviously, everything happened just like the Lord said. He was identified and he was killed. He and his family. And they were burned with fire. God is serious about this sin of not stealing. Well, not only is there that very illustrative example, but turn with me to 1 Kings 21. And let's talk for a moment about Naboth's vineyard. Naboth's vineyard. Remember Naboth? He had a vineyard next to King Ahab. King Ahab wanted his vineyard, but Naboth wasn't going to give it to him. And we pick up here in 1 Kings chapter 21 what happens uh, as Jezebel now gets involved in order to kind of help Ahab steal Naboth's vineyard. Now, Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Israel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have have it for a vegetable garden because it is uh, near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it or if it seems good to you I will give you its value in money but Naboth said to Ahab the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers and Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him for he had said that I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers and he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat would eat no food Man, what a party pooper, huh? This guy's having major issues. Enter Jezebel. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and to the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders, the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. And it is written in the letters that she had said to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the table. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. And they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. 
As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Now, so far, what we've learned, at least in these two extreme cases, that stealing can result either in you dying for your own sin or in you killing somebody else because you want real bad what they've got. Between these two stories, we see there's other things besides just stealing. Stealing is never innocent. It's never just left alone as its only act of sin. Always with stealing will be other sins that will escalate the situation to make it way worse than you could ever imagine. I mean, anytime I'm watching like a bank robbery take place in a movie, like whether it's an old Western or whether it's a modern times, it's like the guys get the cash or they get the bars of gold or the diamonds and they're getting away and you're, you're partly kind of wanting them to get away, but you're not supposed to want them to get away. But, you know, they're getting away and then the cops come in and they're kind of chasing them down and all of a sudden there's a gunfight and then the theft dies. And every time that the thief dies and he's kind of holding in his hand this valuable, this thing that he stole and kind of falls, you know, to the ground. And I just think, man, is it really worth it? Is it really worth risking your life to steal something that could escalate to outright murder if you don't get what you want or you're doing it illegally? Can you imagine getting shot because you stole something that's not yours? It's just kind of showing here, even in the scripture, that stealing is serious. And God is serious with his rebuke against those who steal. Not only do we have these two examples in the Old Testament, turn with me, if you will, to Malachi 3, and let's talk about number three, Malachi's rebuke. Malachi's rebuke. Malachi, one of the minor prophets, it's actually the last book of the Old Testament, so you might just want to turn to Matthew and then go back one book. But there in Malachi chapter 3, he's, he's, he's challenging Israel to repent. And here's what he says, Malachi 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change, therefore, O children of Jacob... Uh, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions or tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a cursed, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Well, maybe your struggle this morning is not stealing from others, Maybe your struggle this morning is you've been stealing from God. You've been robbing God. Everything you have is given to you by God. You are simply a steward. It all belongs to him. And some of us in this congregation, even this morning, might be guilty of this same sin committed by the Israelites in the Old Testament, where God, if he were speaking truthfully to you this day, might say, stop robbing me. The idea here is that God then graciously, in Malachi uh, 3.10, kind of turns the corner and says, hey, look, you can repent of this. 
Okay, you can change this. In fact, if you repent of this and you begin to bring the full tithe into the storehouse, and then God says, put me to the test. I mean, how many times in the Bible do you read God saying, hey, test me in this? Usually we're taught, hey, don't put God to the test, right? But this time God himself invites you to put him to the test, says the Lord. If you bring in that full tithe, he says, will I not open the windows of heaven for you and and, and pour down for you blessing until there is no more need? I mean, according to this passage, God is going to curse Israel for robbing him, but he's going to bless them if they give back to God what belongs to him already kind of reminds me a little bit about what Jesus says in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. So we're starting to see already this idea of don't steal but rather give. Give your money away. Give it to the Lord. Give it to those who are in need. It's the same principle Dr. Barrick already read in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. For each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And in that passage of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we read about grace giving, the fact that God gave his son, and out of gratitude, we should always keep in mind that we're called to give regularly, that we're called to give sacrificially, and that we're called to give joyfully. That's what God desires for us today. That's what God desires for us every day of our life and each Lord's Day that we come together. And so let me just ask you this morning, how are we doing as a church How are you doing in your giving to the Lord? You see, I told you this message applies to to us all because we all know what it's like to feel like holding on to more than maybe sometimes we ought. Am I trying to guilt you this morning into giving more? No. I'm trying to grace you this morning into being freed from your sin of robbing God and to give freely to the Lord who is freely given regularly, sacrificially, and joyfully. Well, let me move on because I'm, I'm sensing you guys are feeling a little convicted. So let me move on to the next point, all right? B, clearly condemned in the New Testament. Not only is this condemned in the Old Testament, this sin of stealing, but it's clearly condemned in the New Testament. In fact, I would say subpoint number one here, let's talk about justice and the punishment for stealing. Justice and the punishment for stealing. I think you know John 10.10. That's one verse that's got to come to mind when you think about stealing because it says the thief comes only to steal, to kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus warns us in a passage that has to do with false shepherds and him being the true shepherd, not to give in to these false shepherds who are really thieves, who really only come in to steal. And notice what's connected with stealing, killing and destroying. That's what the false teachers of that day, and that's what the false teachers of our day are still interested in doing, in ripping you off and stealing from you. 
Now, uh, we also read in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. In fact, why don't you turn there with me? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 talks a little bit about the punishment, if you will, for stealing. Not only will it lead to ultimately you being destroyed, but according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, here's that list that we read sometimes, verses 9 through 11, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor, what's the next word? Thieves, right? Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so here God is labeling the punishment for ongoing unrepentant sin, specifically stealing or being a thief, is that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Justice will prevail, and all who repent will experience God's grace in amazing portions, but those who don't will suffer the judgment of God. Well, not only do we see that principle of judgment and uh, and punishment, but we also uh, see, number two, Judas and the money bag right? Judas and the money bag. In fact, turn with me, if you can, to John 12. You're familiar with who Judas is. Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ. This gives us a little bit of biographical information of kind of the life he lived, even as a disciple of Christ. John 12, starting in verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. Sound like a beautiful occasion, right? Lazarus back from the dead. We got Martha doing her thing. She's serving again. We got Mary who's like worshiping Christ. And then verse 4, but... Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was uh, about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, righteous Judas, right? He sounds so holy. Why didn't we take this money and just give it to the poor? He said this, verse 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a, what? A thief, and having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. So here we read in this account that Judas was a thief. And you know what his end was. He ended up committing suicide. It seems very clear that he never repented, that he was, he was this disobedient apostate who betrayed Christ, but he was a thief, as clearly identified in this passage. And so we've talked a little bit about justice and punishment, Judas and the money bag. Let's take a look at number three. How about Jesus and the thief? We're talking about Jesus and the thief on the cross. And there in Luke chapter 23, we read about how there were two others who were criminals, who were uh, led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, where they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, Matthew clearly identifies these two criminals as two thieves. Okay, So these are two thieves. The punishment for the day was death, capital punishment for stealing. 
Apparently, they had done enough bad where they're going to be strung up or crucified, rather, on each side of Christ. And if you'll skip down to verse 39, there in Luke 23, one of the criminals who were hanged, who, who were hanged uh, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. There it is, right? We talk a lot about the thief on the cross. Is there a such thing as a deathbed confession? Well, in this case, absolutely yes. Jesus senses, because he had probably already granted this thief the ability to repent, this thief is going to be with Christ on that day of paradise. But it's just another reminder, as these thieves are facing capital punishment, that thieves deserve to die. This thief did not deserve to go to paradise with Christ. Rather, he deserved to go to hell. Certainly, we today who still deserve the same consequence, we deserve eternal separation from God. Now, get this. The first Adam in the garden became a thief who stole from God, right? Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, who God said, don't take this fruit, and they took of that fruit. So the first Adam in the garden was a thief who stole from God. Now we see the second Adam... Christ saving a thief from his sins. The first Adam committed the first sin, which was stealing from God. The last Adam committed his last act, saving a thief who was repentant toward God. To put it simply, the first Adam became a thief. The second Adam delivered a thief. Truth is, we should all see ourselves as that first Adam who committed that sin, and even as that thief on the cross, that without the grace of God would be doomed into a lost eternity. But what a blessed God we serve. What a gracious Christ that would look to you this day and say that if you would repent and believe in me, that you would be with him from everlasting to everlasting. The problem is, is that we are totally confused about this even in our culture today. Your next blank there is that there is clearly confusing, uh, this is clearly confusing in our society today. What I I mean by confusing is the idea that our culture rationalizes to no end in order to justify this practice of stealing. In fact, I'll just say it this way. Number one, the temptation to steal is more common than you think. It's way more common. Stealing happens all the time, like every day. Like it's going on uh, 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 every day throughout uh, the world. In fact, in, in, in retail, the biggest crime that's being committed is no longer shoplifters who come in and take items that they want, but rather it's the employees of the store that have to protect themselves from theft. If you've ever worked in retail, you know that. The idea is that there's surveillance cameras not only to catch the shoplifters, but to catch the actual employees who are taking things away from the store. In fact, some of the inflated prices is suggested has to, has to be from budgeting for what they know will be merchandise that's, that's, that's missing. And I would say to you that stealing is Satan's way of whispering in your ear that God is not enough 
and that the providence of God is poorly placed in your life. In other words, you think in that moment that you succumb to temptation, what God has given me is just not enough. I need a little bit more. Satan begins to whisper in your ear with that temptation, and it comes from our own flesh and from the world, the idea that we think we need a little more. And that's why I'm telling you this morning, if you're asking yourself, well, I I don't really struggle with stealing. I'm trying to help you to see, yes, you do. You struggle with stealing. I struggle with stealing because it's a sin that is common to man. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says as he defines this sin, quote, stealing does not always apply to things in the material realm. Stealing really means taking possession of and using as your own something that does not belong to you, appropriating something that is not yours to serve your own ends and your own gratifications. Close quote. And so we can see uh, that stealing money is wrong and stealing possessions is wrong, but there's other things that you can also steal that you and I could be guilty of. For example, you could steal time. You, you could be working for a company where you're called to punch a card and you're tempted from time to time to punch the card a little earlier or a little later or get a coworker to punch your card too, or you could be guilty of socializing at work or taking care of personal matters on the company time. That's called stealing. You could be guilty of the sin of plagiarism, common at universities, seminaries, preaching, right? Taking material that's not your own, stealing the work of another without giving them credit. You're tempted with this. We're all tempted with helping ourselves to things that really don't belong to us. Maybe even at your place of work where you've gotten into the habit of taking paper and pens and envelopes, stamps for your own personal use. Maybe you've been tempted to do a little cheating on your taxes where you say, yeah, 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 I drove a bunch of miles for charity this year. I mean a bunch, like 50,000. Or I gave away a lot of money this year. I don't remember how much, somewhere around 55,000. I mean, you just keep thinking that when you're filling out your taxes, we have to be careful that if we're not faced with that temptation of the amount of money that we can write off. The idea is that this temptation is everywhere. It's common and it's in our own hearts. Let's talk for a moment about not only this temptation to steal, but let's talk about, number two, the motivation to steal. The the motivation is more corrupt than you think. Remember how I was telling you that there's always something more to stealing. Sometimes it leads to murder and to lying and everything else, right, to try to cover up stealing. And let me give you a couple other ideas. If you steal, you struggle with the sin of pride. You're struggling with the sin of pride because you think that you're justifying what you need in that moment and that it's right somehow in your own mind to take what is not yours. You might struggle with the sin of selfishness. Thefts struggle with the idea of being selfish. They want more. I can't get enough. I'm selfish. I want more for me and mine. If you're a thief, you also struggle as you steal with jealousy. You look at some, somebody else, what they have, and you want more for yourself. You, you struggle with the sin of covetousness which is very similar to jealousy, that you covet something somebody else has and you want it. It may be that you're struggling with the sin of laziness. You're just not willing to work hard enough to get it. And so since you're not willing to work hard enough to get it, you go and steal it. That's connected to the sin of laziness. Or maybe you're struggling with the sin of impatience. I believe that was part of the sin I committed in my first attempt at theft when I was about six years old. 
I was uh, getting some quarters for doing some work around the house. I think my parents, maybe from time to time, gave us a little bit of an allowance. And, uh, you know, that didn't happen all the time. But I remember getting quarters. And I was looking one day in my room at these quarters. And I'm like, man, these are nice. Like, they're shiny, 25 cents. I wonder how many quarters it would take to get a $20 bill. And I remember thinking, man, if I had a $20 bill, I'd be rich. So one day, I got overcome with the temptation of going to get some more quarters because I wasn't going to be patient enough to wait for God to bring those quarters through hard work. So I snuck into my parents' bedroom. I went up to my dad's dresser, and I reached into his top drawer where I knew he had some loose change, and I grabbed a handful of quarters. And I walked back to my room, and I closed the door, and I sat down, and I had a bunch of quarters, and it felt so good. Quarters. I bet I got about 20 bucks and at that very moment, the door opens wide open, and my dad walks in and says, Hey, son, what you doing? Uh, playing with some quarters. He's like, I saw you going to my bedroom. What, 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 what did you do? And sure enough, it came out, and I got a whooping that I'll never forget uh, that day. You know, but sometimes that's what happens. We just can't wait. We can't wait, so we go and take it. We might struggle with the sin of greed, right? We're greedy. We got to have more, and we got to have it right then. Or how about this? You struggle with the sin of idolatry. That's really what we're doing. We're worshiping a desire that we want, and since we can't get it, we go and steal in order to fulfill our idolatry. Or maybe we're struggling with the sin of idleness, that you're just sitting around doing nothing, and it leads to further temptation. I mean, there's some people who can't even think of their motive. They seem to steal for no reason at all. They're called kleptomaniacs, right? You're familiar with the, with what uh, our, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual of Psychiatric Disorders calls kleptomania. That word klepto is actually the Greek word here that we're looking at about stealing. And so somebody's crazy about stealing. They, they have this, this, this condition, which, it, you, you know, you can get diagnosed with that, right? If you steal too much, particularly if it's like for no reason, like some celebrities are accused of this, like Lindsay Lohan and others have been accused of being a kleptomaniac because they continue to steal stuff that they don't really need. Like they got plenty of money. And yet it's somehow connected, they say, with manic depressive disorder or uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. It, it's, it's connected with that because they're saying they're just obsessive about doing this and it kind of gives them a rush. And so they don't label it as sin, like a moral uh, a bridge of, of virtue or value. Instead, they say, oh, well, this person has kleptomania. They need to be having therapy and maybe be even placed on medication to help them not sin. Well, my friends, let me just tell you, that couldn't be further from the truth. Anybody who steals is guilty of sin. It's sin against God. It's sin against your fellow man. And this passage says to steal no more. And that moves us, obviously, into our second point of replacing that negative uh, behavior with something positive. And so the positive command that's written here is to labor doing honest work, to labor doing honest work. Notice it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And so here's the idea. We think sometimes we get the idea like, oh yeah, I shouldn't steal. I shouldn't steal. What should I do in its place? According to this passage, the first thing you should do is you should work hard. You should work hard. In fact, I would say this, hard work is always a testimony of the gospel. Hard work is always, and I guess I'm saying if it's done with the right heart, okay? So I didn't put all the words in there, but you understand, not not hard work done selfishly, but with the right heart. Hard work is always a testimony of the gospel. Titus 2, 9 and 10. 
Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So here, they're challenged not to pilfer. Again, pilfer would be like skimming off the top, taking just a little bit here and a little bit there to somehow make your ends meet. But it's really stealing. When you steal, it's an it's a, it's, it's, it's a advertisement for the devil. When you do honest, hard work, it's an advertisement for God. When you work hard with the right heart, this verse says that you're adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. We also see that hard work is always an evidence of mature Christianity. It's an evidence of mature Christianity. Maybe the most common passage on working hard would be 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor. By the way, that word labor means like working hard with your hands. The idea that you're sweating and toiling and working, that's the kind of labor that this verse talks about that honors the Lord. And so Paul says they did it. We didn't just eat and take advantage of you. We paid for it. We labored and we worked night and day that we may not be a burden to you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you are idle. They, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. You're not willing to work. It shows a immaturity to your understanding of the gospel. If you love Christ, you will apply yourself to the best of your ability with God's help and God's grace to work, which demonstrates again the gospel and the maturity of your own walk. We could say this, see, hard work is a way to provide for your family. You know this passage well, 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So in other words, if you're not working, because maybe you're trying to figure out a way to make it in this world without working, you're going to find a special loophole. You're going to get rich quick. You're going to do anything you can except hard labor for God. Then the Bible says if that's your habit to a degree, it may be that you are worse than an unbeliever because Christians work hard. So what's the rationale given in the text? Number three, so that you can share with others in need. Labor so that you may be a blessing to others. Notice what the text says. It doesn't say labor so that you may be a blessing to yourself. That may be the temptation, right? All right, Adam, I'm not going to steal. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to work and save so I can buy X, Y, Z for me. But in this text, that's not what it says. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. So in other words, don't steal with your hands. Use your hands to do this honest work so that what? He may have something to share with anyone in need. We ought to be laboring instead of stealing, not so that we can have more, but so that we can share and be a blessing with anybody who has need. That's what this passage is all about. 
We could also say that labor because you will be blessed as you show care for others. Luke 14 says that when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So the Bible does say, hey, look, you ought to have people over that can't pay you back. That's true hospitality, showing hospitality and friendship to strangers, that you're providing for them, not to to get a blessing back from them, but rather that you know that God's going to bless you. So the motive there was that I want to be a blessing to others because God says that that when I do that, I'll be blessed. Um, the, the, The last one would be this, labor because it is more of a blessing to give than to receive, right? How how many times have we heard that hopefully growing up in the church? If you did grow up in the church, if not, you need to know it's something that Jesus said, and he said it uh, apparently in the gospels, but Paul himself addressing the, the elders of the Ephesus church said this in Acts 20, 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus of how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This morning, we want to be a church that's blessed because we're a church that's giving instead of stealing. Or some of the take-home points are pretty clear. Stealing shows that you are not satisfied with your present status. If you're guilty of stealing, what you're really saying is, I'm not satisfied with God. And I'm not satisfied with what God has given me. He hasn't given me enough. And so I've got to steal in order to get that which my soul really yearns for. So maybe that's something you ought to consider in your own heart and ask God to be who he claims to be, which is all satisfying in the life of all Christians who would come to him for rest. Number two, working hard is an evidence of God's grace and provision. I don't care what you do. If you're making minimum wage or you make a million dollars a year, your hard work is evidence of the grace of God. Be thankful. Be grateful. Work hard. Be a good employee. Through your hard work, be a witness for Christ that others would see your labor and say, you know what, there's something different about this employee. They work hard, they're trustworthy, and then you're able to give them the message of the gospel. Number three, sharing with others should be a constant motivation for working hard. Why why do you work hard? Why do you have that job at night? Why do you stay extra long hours at work? Is it so that you can get ahead? Is it so that you can buy that next thing? Or is it the reason that we're given in verse 28 so that you may have something to share with anyone in need? See, it's not about stealing so that you can have more. It's about not stealing so that we can work hard for God's glory to share what we have with others, to give away more. The substitute for stealing is not gaining, it's giving. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at this text and just to be uh, thinking through all the implications and the applications of the Holy Spirit in our hearts at this moment of areas that we want to change and grow to become more like Jesus. This day, we confess that we are just like the thief on the cross Thank you, O God, that you've shown us today the picture of that second Adam, the perfect God-man, Jesus Christ, who is more than willing to forgive us of our sins. Though we have stolen, 
You tell us that you will take our sins if we repent and wash us and throw them as far as the east is from the west and make us whiter than snow. And God, I pray that you would begin to bless this church with a renewed conviction about a hard worth ethic for the glory of God and the gospel, that you would allow us as we work hard and as you bless that labor, that we would do it to give and not just to get more. God, help us to no longer steal, but rather to work hard to give back to you and to your people and to all those who are in need, that which will be a blessing to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.